They were taking a break from our uh, sermon series that we have been in, in the Gospel of Luke, to take a look at a passage from the Gospel of John that actually would have happened around the very similar time to where we've been studying in Luke's Gospel during that last week of Jesus' earthly life after He had entered into uh, the city of Jerusalem as the city was preparing for the celebration of the Passover. And in John's Gospel and in John chapter 14, uh, John, uh, John is recording Jesus as He is encouraging His disciples, as He's talking to them about what's going to come next and what life will look like. Now, they don't perfectly understand how it all works and how it all fits together yet, but Jesus is explaining this is what it will be like and this is where your encouragement will be. Now, the passage that we're going to read is John chapter 14, verses 1 to 7, so you can feel free if you have a Bible to turn to John 14 and, and follow along. But I'm going to warn you, um, this week, and it's a little bit different, this week the, the, the sermon, our study, is going to not be a a detailed study of the entire passage that we're going to read. It's helpful, I think, for context. But this week, what we're really just going to do is an extended meditation on verse 6. And I'll explain that a little bit more about, uh, about that and about why in just a minute. But for now, let me ask you to stand, if you're able, as I read God's Word. And then when I'm finished, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the Word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. So this is John 14, starting at verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, as I, as I said, um, my goal this morning is really to wrestle with just one verse of what we read, and that's verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now why? Now why, why, why zero in on this verse? Well, because today is Vision Sunday and we have our annual congregational meeting. And for the last several years on this same day, on this occasion at the beginning of the year, we have taken one part of our purpose statement and we've looked at it more closely. And our purpose statement, what's a purpose statement? It's just a reason why we exist. And there's lots of, there's lots of ways that you can express a very similar sentiment as to why the church exists. But the one that has always sort of rolled most easily off my tongue is that we, we exist to celebrate and to proclaim eternal life, transformative hope, and unshakable joy only through Jesus. And over the last three years, we've looked at the three things that we celebrate and proclaim. We've looked at eternal life. We've looked at transformative hope. We've looked at unshakable joy. And the interesting thing is, is that each of those things, life, hope, joy, people can argue about what they mean or argue about how you would get them, life, hope, and joy, but few people would actually dispute that they would be good things to want at least in how you might, however you might define them. In other words, celebrating and proclaiming 
life, hope, and joy isn't actually terribly controversial, if that's what you tell people you do. What, what do you do as a church? Well, we, we celebrate life, hope, and joy. And you wouldn't get much argument. It's what, it's what most people would say to churches and religions and, and stuff. That's what, that's what you should be doing. That sounds really good. That sounds really noble. But the last part, the part that holds it all together, actually, is the controversial part. Because we say we exist to celebrate and proclaim eternal life, transformative hope, and unshakable joy that comes only through Jesus. And that's that last part, that through Jesus part that gets controversial. In fact, this one author that I was reading, Michael Dormandy, he says, if you ever want to lose friends and become unpopular, that's how you do it. Right? Teenagers, listen up. If you ever want to lose friends and become unpopular, right, this is a strategy to do it, he says. Say to someone, I think my religion is right and others are wrong. And you could say it really nicely, but as soon as you say that, the response for many is, how dare you say something like that? Objection, Your Honor. Objection. The Christian is out of order. And at least in our culture today, the collective judge of our peers, when that objection is offered, the collective judge is to respond to the objection and agree. Objection sustained. The Christian is, is out of order. Now, in an admittedly incomplete way, because I can't go fully into every possible argument, I, do want, I want to address that claim that Jesus makes here, because it is an exclusive claim. No one comes to God except through me. No one except through me. That's what it says. By definition, that is exclusive, and that's where the controversy is in the mission of the church. So I want to take that head on. I want to look at it under four headings. I want to look at the claim of exclusivity. I want to look at the objection to exclusivity, the commonality of exclusivity, and then finally the case for Christian exclusivity. All right, let's walk through it because it's, it, it, it might sound more complicated than it, than it actually is. First, what's the claim that's being made here? I start, I, I start here because this is the one thing a Christian can never say is that Christianity doesn't claim that Jesus is the only way to God. There's some who attempt to to say that, actually, right? They say, well, I prefer to think of Christianity as not having exclusivity. I like Jesus and all, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't like to think of it that way as the, as, as the only way, but you pro- the problem is you really can't do that. I mean, you could say that you prefer to think that Jesus doesn't make exclusive claims about himself being the only way to life, hope, and joy, but you're saying it without the Bible at that point because Jesus actually said the opposite. Right? That's, of course, the verse in John 14, verse 6 that we just read. You can't get much clearer. The thing is, is that that's not the only example. It's not like you're just sort of picking that out of context and sort of taking that one verse and developing a whole doctrine around it. And I don't have time to go through every verse, but let's just, let's just kind of cite just a couple of other examples. For example, in Matthew 11, verse 27, this is Matthew's account of Jesus' life, and Jesus says there, No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. I know who's the son. Jesus, of course, is the divine son. He's talking about himself. And he's saying that the son is the path to knowing the father. And no one, he says, exclusive claim, can know the father by any other way. Also in John 17, you go to John 17, Jesus is praying his great prayer before his arrest. And he says, and this is eternal life that they know you. He's talking to his father. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus is saying that eternal life is definitionally the, the knowledge of the only true God, the only one, not several options, only one true God, and you have to know Him 
and knowing Jesus Christ. And you have, to know, you have to know Him by knowing Jesus Christ. It's the only way. It's an exclusive claim. Now, the rest of the New Testament bears this out as well. There's lots of other passages you could cite. In fact, Acts chapter 4 is another very classic, very clear example. Peter, the apostle Peter, this is after Jesus has died and raised again and ascended into heaven, but the apostle Peter is defending himself in front of the high priest, in front of the Jewish elders, and he's proclaiming that Jesus was risen from the dead and that the people should follow Jesus. And he says, Peter says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And these are just a couple of examples. There's lots more. The claim to exclusivity is unmistakable. You can't ignore it. You can't run away from it. But to a certain extent, all I'm doing up to here, I'm just sort of doubling down on the unpopularity, right, if you say something like that. Because as soon as Jesus says something like that, as soon as, as you, as we as a church, say that we celebrate and proclaim that, then out comes the objection, and that's heading number two, right, the objection to an exclusive claim. And really, I think there's two main categories of objections that kind of come to a claim like this, two categories or lines of argument that, that people make. The first is the arrogance objection. Right? Kids, what does it mean to be arrogant? Have you heard that word before? Arrogant. It means that you think so much of yourself and how great you are and how smart you are that you think you're better and you're smarter than everyone else. And therefore, you become really unpleasant to be around. That's what it means to be arrogant. You think so much of yourself that you're so great, that you're so amazing, that, that you just become really full of yourself and unpleasant to be around. And so the arrogance objection comes like this. How can you possibly be so arrogant, Christian, to assume that you have the only truth that's out there? After all, there's so many religions. There's so much disagreement. How could you possibly say that you're smarter than all of them? Now, don't just dismiss that Christians can be arrogant sometimes. <laughs> this can't happen. You do have to admit that there are some people who are like this. But the truth of a claim, how true it is, does not depend upon whether the person presents it in an appropriate way or not. Right? We can dismiss and we can lament that some people arrogantly make exclusive claims all the time. But it doesn't necessarily, or by the fact of it being made in an arrogant way, eliminate the possibility that it might still actually be true. Now, Christians, that's one, that's one objection that people make, the arrogance objection. The second objection is the fairness objection. And it goes like this. Okay, Jesus might have said that he's the only way to God, but does that seem fair to you? I mean, after all, there's lots of other people in the world, lots of people who disagree with Jesus. Maybe there's people who haven't even heard of Jesus. That doesn't seem, that doesn't seem fair. Now, we talked in the, the, the community group uh, that meets on, on Sunday evenings. We won't be meeting tonight, by the way. Um, but, but the community group that meets on Sunday evenings, we actually talked about this last, last Sunday, this idea. And we said that it's, it's always a very dangerous thing to ask God for fairness. Because if He's perfect and and we're pretty clearly not perfect, then, um, then going to the judge of the universe before, we stand, before whom we stand as, as guilty and saying that what we want is a fair sentence, just give me fairness, that's what I want. That's not really what we want. You don't really want God to treat you according to what you actually deserve. But that's not really, I don't think, the spirit of the objection. When someone says that's not fair, what they really may be also just simply saying is fairness aside is, wait a minute, that's not... That's not equal. You haven't treated all people equally that way. And we have to acknowledge that in an exclusive claim, there are some that are in and some that are out. That's sort of the definition of exclusivity. 
Those are the objections that are raised, and they have to be thought through, and they have to be addressed. But again, just because a claim is true, or just because a claim is made, right, and just because it does exclude other people, there can't be things that are true and not true at the same time. Those are the objections, the fairness objection and the, and the arrogance objection. Now, before we head to the, the case for Christian exclusivity, why this makes sense and why we ought to believe it, the answer actually starts with heading number three, the commonality of exclusivity. Now, that's a bit of a cumbersome phrase, the commonality of exclusivity, I know. But it's just how I, it's, I could just sort of fit it into the flow of the, of the other headings. But what I mean by it is this. I mean that whether people think about it or not, being exclusive is common to every system of belief and, and, and every system of viewing the world. Everyone is exclusive. Everyone claims a truth that they believe is true, and therefore everything else is not. In other words, everyone has a way of viewing the world that they think is right. And if you really press them on it, they think it's the only way. And the easiest way to, to talk about it is to return to a, a very common illustration about the blind men and the elephant. Have you heard this before? It's a pretty common illustration. I was thinking about this last week because um, if you were at the if you were at the concert uh, last fall with Keith and Kristen Getty, uh, you might remember uh, Zach and Maggie. Zach and Maggie were the, the married couple. Um, Zach played the guitar. Maggie played the violin. She danced. And they did for us um, this little number from an album that was actually just released this past week. The title of the album and the, and the song that they previewed for us was called The Elephant in the Room. Right, now, it's not about this illustration, but it, it connected it for me this week. Right? The elephant in the room. So this is, I want you to imagine. Kids, I want you to imagine that there's a big elephant right here in the room. And don't ask me how the big elephant got through the doors. I don't know. But he's here. Okay? He's here right here in the, in the room. And the, the elephant in the, in the room illustration goes like this. You've got an elephant in the room, and you have a bunch of blind men. And the blind men approach the elephant from every side, and they're trying to figure out what's true about the elephant. And they come up to the elephant and they only know what they're able to feel because they're, because they're blind. And so one of them, one blind man, is feeling the, the trunk and he says, ah, I know what elephants are. Elephants are long and flexible. They're like a big garden hose. And another blind man is feeling the leg and he says, no, no, elephants are, 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 are thick and they're sturdy like a, like a tree trunk. And another blind man is holding the tail and he says, no, 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 no. An elephant is long and stringy, like a, like a piece of rope. And another, another blind man has is, is got a hold of the, of the tusk and, and says, no, 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 you, you all got it wrong. An elephant is, uh, is hard and pointy, kind of like a spear or a, or a sword. Another blind man's on the side of the elephant, the big, broad size. No, 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 an elephant is flat and wide. And then the, and the illustration goes like this. This is the, this is the point. The illustration goes, is, 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 is it, no, no, see, each of those blind men, they don't actually have the full picture. They're just like each of the religions in the world. They just have a little small piece, and they think what they have is true, and it is to a certain extent, but it's not the whole truth. They only have a piece of the truth, and therefore, you see, all of the religions are all true, and one can't claim to know everything about everything. Now, the interesting thing is, this is meant to, be, to sound very reasonable. It's meant to, to answer the fairness and the arrogant objections. 
because it's fair. Ultimately, everyone uh, gets to be told that they're indeed correct. That's fair. You're correct. You're correct. You're correct. We want to be able to do that. That seems fair. It's an attempt to, to keep people humble because you just sort of have to view yourself as as blind. You only know your peace and you don't know someone else's peace and so you just kind of stay in your, in your area. But the problem is, and Leslie Newbigin was a British missionary to India for a number of years and he was the first one, at least he was the first one to, to write it down because everyone cites him as, as sort of identifying the flaw in the argument. And what Leslie Newbigin said was that, while, was that once it finally dawned on him as he was thinking about this illustration that people would constantly kind of bring up in front of him when he went to India and said, you're absolutely arrogant to say that there is only one way and that way is through Jesus. He said it finally dawned on him that there is actually one character in the story who makes a claim to knowing total truth, and it's the narrator. It's the one telling the story. He's the one who gets to see the entire relevant. He knows everything, and so therefore he's the one who's able to stand back and say, I know complete truth. And Newbigin said that he realized that the only way that you could say that every religion only has part of the truth is if you assume that you actually are the only one to be able to see all truth. And therefore, aren't you doing the very same thing that you told everyone else not to do? And that is make an absolute and arrogant claim that you know what no one else does. Quote from Newbigin, he says, there's an appearance of humility in the protestation that the truth is much greater than any one of us can grasp, but it may be, in fact, an arrogant claim to a kind of knowledge which is superior to all others. In other words, all of this to say, all the elephants and the, and the blind men and the new big and quotes aside, all of it, the point is that everyone makes a claim to see the world as it really is. And that claim, to the extent that you think it is the right claim, is an exclusive claim because you believe that you're right and other people are wrong. Now, just let me make it clear that I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think it's wrong to do that. Right? I, think that I think that Muslims should make an exclusive claim. I think Hindus should make an exclusive claim because that's how they view the world. We can disagree with the claims, but it's not inappropriate for them to, to make them. In fact, it's, dishonestly, it's intellectually dishonest to argue that you're not making it. So we have to make the case then. If everyone makes an exclusive claim, if it is in fact common to, to, to say, I know how the world works and this is how everyone else should view it too, then it is our responsibility to make the case, to understand what Christianity uniquely says and why we believe it to be true and why we believe it to be right. And that's the fourth point, the case for a Christian exclusivity. And let me just say that I think we have the assertion to make the case that Jesus is the only way to receive eternal life and transformative hope and unshakable joy. We have the obligation to make the case that it is both true and it is desired. Right? It's true, it's what is, and it is desired. It's what we should want. At the end of the day, we only need, we only need it to be true in order for it to be true. But I think part of our mission as a church is to show people that what is true is also beautiful that it actually is also the best thing, that it is what we ought to want. Now, first, what you need to do to be prepared to defend that Jesus is the, the, not, is the only way to, to God is you need to, to see what he said in John 14, 6, and you, say, and you need to see that not only did he make that claim, but that he was right in making that claim. 
Because you could conceive of the fact like, okay, Jesus said it, but I'm not sure Jesus was right. And in the, you know, it's the common C.S. Lewis argument from his classic book, Mere Christianity. Because there's only a few possibilities to view, if you concede that Jesus actually made the claim, well, then there's only a few possibilities as to what could have actually been going on. Right? He could have been a truly good person, but delusional. So he made the claim, but he was just wrong. He was out of his mind. Or, other possibility, he knew he wasn't God. He knew he wasn't the only way to God, and he was just lying about it. He was intentionally deceiving people. He went around telling people that anyway. Maybe because he was, in fact, he wanted the ego trip out of it. So he was either sincerely, but, but, but truly delusional, he was wrong, or he knew that he was wrong and he was intentionally deceiving people, or he was actually correct. And the basic Christian case that we make every week is that Jesus not only said the things that he said, but he backed up those claims with what he did. And that's why the resurrection of Jesus that we talk about all the time matters so much. Because Jesus could have been just another itinerant teacher in what we now refer to as the first century, roaming around the territory of occupied Judea, teaching things that made the government and the religious leaders upset and got himself killed for it. There were lots of those kinds of people. It happened a lot. And we would have never have heard anything more about this Jesus of Nazareth if he hadn't then risen from the dead. Because the fact that he rose and didn't just die changes everything because it validates that who he claimed to be was really who he claimed to be. That he was the God as he, as he claimed, that he was correct in everything that he taught, that it was true. It was all true. Jesus' claim can be trusted, not just because we read it in a book, but because he backed it up, because he validated his claim by rising again and demonstrating to be the God who makes that claim. But it is not only true, we should be absolutely grateful that it is, but it's not only true. And as we finish, I want to run through these things that we say we celebrate and proclaim and test the exclusive claims of Christianity versus some of the other competing claims, versus a claim of, uh, the claims of, of, of moralistic religion, which is what most religions are in the world. I just got to do something. I got to work harder. I got to fulfill a certain list. Right? How does the claim of Christianity match up against that and against the claim of secular atheism? There is no God. It doesn't matter. We're from nothing and going to nothing. Right? Both of those are exclusive claims about how the world is and how it ought to be viewed. And I, we need to see, I want you to see, that Christianity not only makes that claim and we can believe that claim that Christianity is, and is, is true, but that it is beautiful that it is the best way. So real quick, just run through this with me. Think about eternal life. Right? If you're a secular atheist, you deny eternal life, and so it might not matter to you, but you still have to contend with the fact that everyone seems to want to have some sort of greater purpose, a transcendent meaning for, for why we exist. But if this life is all there is, and there is nothing after this, then ultimately you have to concede that life has no meaning. If, on the other hand, you're a follower of a, of a moralistic religion, then you believe maybe that there is some sort of eternal reward, but you're constantly under the pressure of having to work for it. All the major religions of the world are, are, are moralistic in that sense. You need to do something. Right? Sometimes a lot of somethings in order to earn that reward. 
But if that's how the world works, if you've got to make the payment for it, if you've got to earn it, right, then you're left making a self-payment for your sin, working your way out of your own debt and wondering if you could ever possibly be able to pay enough to get what you desire. But the claim of Christianity is that Jesus paid everything for your sin, right? All of your sin, completely and totally. It isn't dependent on what you've done. 1 John 4, 9 says that this is how the love of God was made clear to us, that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. Live through Him. Life and life through Jesus and through Jesus alone. And John makes clear in that passage that life isn't given because we love God first, but because He loved us first. In other words, there's nothing that we can do. He's done it all. And I would argue that not only is that, is that the only message of eternal life that is true, it is the only message of eternal life that is satisfying. Think about transformative hope. Right? If you're a secular atheist, then by definition, there really is no reason to be hopeful. Right? We came from nothing, we returned to nothing, we exist for a snap of the fingers on a small rock in the middle of a giant big universe, and then we're gone, and that's it. And all the injustice in the world, right? Even injustice that the secular atheist would get upset about, right? It's never going to be dealt with, right? Never, because there's no hope of a judge at the end of the day. There's lots of things in this world that, that don't get addressed, right? Where's our hope that justice will ultimately be done? There is none because this is all there is. And so it shouldn't surprise us that without real hope, we reach for whatever might we think make us happy that's going to dull the despair that, that we feel. Or we shouldn't be surprised when people pick up the sword to exact revenge because they do not believe there is no hope of ultimate justice one day. That's the despair of the secular atheist when it comes to hope. Now, the despair of a follow, uh, for the follower of a moralistic religion, it might not be as obvious, but how much can you hope, honestly, that, that, that you can be transformed if the work of that transformation is ultimately up to you, whether it's personal transformation or societal transformation? It sounds really motivating to say, let's get out there, let's, do, let's change this world, right? But honestly, we look at our own lives, we can't even change us. We can't even do in our own lives that which we want to have done. It's, there's not much hope. But if the exclusive claims of Christianity are true, and Jesus really did rise from the dead, then as Paul says in Romans, he can guarantee that those he justified in his death, he'll sanctify in his resurrected life, and he will glorify forever. And as Paul said in, 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 in Acts 17 to the people in Athens, the resurrection is the proof that there will be a reckoning of final justice. There will be a day when all the accounts will be settled. So we can have real, true, satisfying hope of both personal and societal transformation. And not only is that the only message of transformative hope that is true, it's the only message of transformative hope that is satisfying. Finally, lastly, take unshakable joy. The last, the last tagline, right? If you're a secular atheist and this life is just a vapor of virtual nothingness with no eternal life and no hope, then what joy can you really have? I mean, you can have momentary, you can experience momentary pleasure, right? But no real joy. Certainly no unshakable joy because the shadow of nothingness just hangs over you all the time. If you're a religious moralist, then joy is elusive as well because you're never quite sure if you measure up. 
Never quite certain what people think of you or how you compare to others around you. Constantly looking for approval from them or from, from others. But if you embrace the claims of Christianity, then your recognition of your own sin frees you of that arrogance that people object to. Because you have no ability to stand before anyone else and claim that you're better than they are. And that actually leads to a greater joy because what you know about yourself, that you are at times not all that great, you can now freely admit and say, yeah, that is me. But because of what Jesus has done, that will not be me. I can be transformed and I can have a joy that results because I know that that will happen. You're freed from from living up to a standard that you know deep down you can't meet. So consequently, you have the ability to be simultaneously humble and confident, free from anxiety, free from the ups and downs of circumstances to make you happy. You can have unshakable joy. And that's what we have, exclusively through Jesus. Eternal life, transformative hope, and unshakable joy. It's the only message that is true. It's the only message that is satisfying. And it is the message that we as a church celebrate and proclaim. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for such a gospel, a gospel that frees us from the burdens of working from that which we know we can't achieve and frees us to a life of obedience and love empowered by your Spirit. Thank you for this message that gives us confidence and hope as we look to the future. It gives us confidence and hope that our presence can have meaning. Thank you, Lord, for an eternal life that is ours through Jesus and through Jesus alone. For we come praying in his name. Amen.